2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, in other words, this body, this human body, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I want to read that last line again. I want you to listen to this. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So that's a promise. Pentecost is about that fulfillment of that. We're going to celebrate. This is the birthday of the church. It's not the birthday of King's Church. King's Church was born in October, I think, of 2018. This is the birthday of, of, of the church of Jesus Christ universal. The spirit came, filled the believers and the church was born, the assembly of the ones who are born. And this is not just something that I'm making up. This is what the, the church has always understood, that the, that the people of Jesus Christ, we are constituted by the Holy Spirit. So we say happy birthday to the church of Jesus Christ. We celebrate. Get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. I want to do a teaching that actually we did two years ago on Pentecost Sunday. It's one of those ones that is like so ingrained in me that we probably will repeat it every two or three years just because I want to get this into my own heart. I want to get in your heart. I feel like it's one of these core messages uh, of, of, of the church. And the title two years ago was this, and it's going to be a curveball for some of you. So listen to me. The title of this two years ago, I didn't put the title up here now, but the title of this two years ago was Why We Are a Pentecostal Church. You guys remember that? Those of you that were here? I know some of you are like about to hit the brakes, about to grab your keys and run for the door. Hold on, I'm going to tell you what that means. I'm going to tell you what that means and we're going to go through um, just a couple things of Acts 19, so bear with me. Acts 19, let me read this to us, beginning verse 1. Well, let me, let me just give a little bit of a background. Um, the, the, the narrative is the, is the evangelism of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. We know that the gospel was meant to go out from Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. That was the mandate from Jesus in Matthew 28, 18. He says, go, you'll be my witnesses. He says in Acts 1, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So there's this outward movement that the church is supposed to go. And Acts, Acts begins to make that happen when the Spirit comes upon them. They immediately come out of the upper room and they begin to prophesy and proclaim in all these different languages. And all of a sudden, it's just like wildfire. The Holy Spirit, I say this, it's written on the front end there. When, this, when the fire comes, the church is born. And that's what happens in Acts 1. So uh, by the time we get to Acts 19, the, the, the gospel has been making its way outside of the confines of Israel, outside the confines of, 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 of Palestine. Now it's making its way into Asia Minor to the north. Asia Minor is our modern-day Turkey. If you were to get in, in, in Israel and head north several hours driving, you would eventually cross the border uh, into Jordan, into Syria. On You keep on going, you'll eventually make your way to Turkey. And this is what Asia Minor is. The old, the old ancient world refers to it as Asia Minor, the gospel has gone there. 
Paul has been making disciples as he's going, um, and he sort of describes this, uh, this, this process of making disciples. They get to a town called Ephesus. Ephesus one is one of the major port cities in Turkey. It's not the capital city. Um, 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 I believe uh, Pergamum, I believe, is a capital city, but Ephesus was by far the most influential city. It was on this port, so a lot of commerce, a lot of traffic. It was a home to um, a temple to Artemis, uh, and, and just a, a tremendous place for so many people to go. Paul has made several visits there, and he's about to make another one. Um, so it says this, while, while Apollos, and, and the previous verses has described this, uh, this disciple Apollos and how significant he was, while he was at Corinth... Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. In other words, he went the inland route through the mountains. He didn't go on the coast, didn't take a ship. He went inland, visiting the little churches along the way. And he arrives at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, Christian disciples, and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So Paul, Paul is, is, is the disciple maker. He's the evangelist. He has his, in his understanding, he knows that there is, there is, there's sort of this process that the believers should encounter when they believe. And he goes, and we don't know why, something about them causes him to say, hey, you guys, you, you 12, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. So if you remember John, John the Baptist, he was, he was a forerunner of Jesus. He had his own gathering of disciples. He had many people that were following after John, listening to his teaching. And what did John, who did John teach about? Jesus. John was teaching about the one who is coming, whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, said John, but another is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So these are some of John's disciples. What they're doing way up in Ephesus, we don't know. Likely some other disciples came from Jerusalem where John was, made their way up, spreading the news about, about the coming Messiah. For some reason, though, they didn't get all of John's teaching. They got some of his teaching, but they must have missed that part about uh, the, 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 the Holy Spirit. Or, or they did understand it, but they didn't know that it actually had happened recently. So it's possible that they knew what John was talking about, that they knew one day the Holy Spirit is going to come, but they did not know that it happened. So whatever it is, they were missing out on this. So Paul says, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believe? They said, no, we've not even heard there was one. And Paul says, well, tell me the level of your knowledge. Tell me how much you know about the faith. In other words, you know, what baptism then did you receive? What level of commitment did you make to Jesus? And they said, well, the only one that we know of is a baptism of repentance. Repentance means, I, Lord, I, I, I am sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the direction of my life. I want to make a change and go after you. And that's foundational Christian teaching. You don't enter into the Christian faith without repentance, right? The, the, the water baptism, this death and resurrection, this symbolizes repentance uh, and, and Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. So Paul then is going to elaborate a little bit more on what they likely, hopefully, possibly already knew about John. He says, uh, he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
In verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, this is important to pay attention to this, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, they spoke in tongues and prophesied, there are about 12 in all. So we call this the Ephesian Pentecost because it it's very closely imitates Acts chapter 2 the upper room Pentecost. So a similar pattern is happening here. Paul goes in, Paul sees people that has an incomplete picture of what the Christian faith is. And he says, well, let me tell you more. There is more than simply being repenting of your sins. There is more for your life than this. Let me impart this to you. And he does, and uh, it, it, it changes those 12. And then it, soon it begins to change not only Ephesus, but the entire province of Asia Minor. Give you some examples of this. Basically, he goes, he preaches in the synagogue for three months. They don't like him there. They kick him out. Um, He takes these disciples, these new disciples with him. He goes to a secular town hall, the hall of Tyrannus. There he begins to preach and teach. Goes on for two years. And the most amazing thing begins to happen in in Ephesus. Goes on to say, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. Their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left him. Gives an example of more power. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they're all seized, excuse me, seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So I want to suggest to you that the biblical church is a Pentecostal church. And let me tell you what I don't mean by that word Pentecostal. First of all, I don't mean a denominational label. There are a lot of denominational labels, Pentecostal, Pentecostal holiness or, you know, the, the, the whatever, whatever assemblies of God and, and, you know, a lot of other Church of God Cleveland. These are all Pentecostal denominations. So it, it can be confusing to stand up and say, we are a Pentecostal church. You might think that, that that's the case. We are not, we're not, we do not belong to, to, to a denomination. It also does not a... I'm not meaning this is a doctrinal distinctive. If you were to, um, to look at our bylaws, you're not going to find something in there that, 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 that talks about we are a Pentecostal church or that we've placed a, a higher priority on the gifts of the Spirit than, than the New Testament gives us permission to. Uh, Pentecostal churches, you know, often have a, have a high view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a high view of tongues, high view, and even some of them have a high view of, 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 of how you dress, especially in the South. I grew up in a, in a holiness church where it was all about how you dress. You know, the women, you don't cut your hair and you don't wear pants and all those kind of things. For some churches, those are, those are marks of being a Pentecostal church. That's not what I mean. I don't mean Pentecostalism in any stretch of the mean. What I mean is we are an empowered Christian community that believes that the regular presence of the Holy Spirit is meant to be the normal Christian experience. That's a long definition. I want to say it again, okay? When I say we are a Pentecostal church, here's what I mean. Simply this. We believe that we are an empowered Christian community that believes that the regular presence of the Holy Spirit in our churches, in our lives, in our families, in our day-to-day living that presence, that power is meant to be the normal Christian experience. We are a full gospel church. 
And I want to give you some examples of why we are, five reasons for why we are this way. And then we're going to kind of get into uh, a couple more things at the end of that. Number one, I've written, I've written these up here. Why are we a Pentecost church? Number one, Pentecost is woven into God's story from the very beginning. Where did Pentecost begin? Someone say Acts 2. No. Set you up, Dylan. I'm sorry, man. Come on. You're just, you're rolling with it. Pentecost was celebrated every single year in the Jewish tradition. This is one of their major festivals. It was one of the major festivals um, called the Festival of Weeks, Shavuot. It was celebrated seven weeks after Passover. Passover was 49 days ago, 50 days ago. Y'all remember what Passover is? The Passover lamb, Jesus in the upper room, taking the bread and the wine. That's all Passover. That was it. Fast forward 50 days from when Jesus was on the cross as a Passover lamb. Now it's the festival of weeks, seven weeks, 49 days. This is the 50th day. We're now starting a new, um, a, a new festival. It commemorated both the wheat harvest for the ancient Israel as well as the giving of the law at Sinai. You see, there's this parallel. 50 days, there's a parallel. 50 days after they came out of Egypt with all the plagues, let my people go, all those kind of things. You remember all that, you know, and they crossed through the Red Sea. 50 days after fleeing Egypt, they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain. He meets with God. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He institutes this covenant. He says, here's my law. Here's how you walk in obedience with me. Take this law on stone and live this out. So it was the giving of the law 50 days after deliverance. You guys seeing the parallels here? That was the original Pentecost. And God says, I want you to commemorate this year after year after year. What's awesome, though, is that so many of these, so many of these, these all, all seven of them actually pointed to some greater reality in human history. We know that. Deuteronomy 16.9, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. In other words, that harvest. Count off seven weeks from that harvest. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord has given you. So just as Passover pointed to something greater, Pentecost pointed to something greater as well. So that's the first, the first reason why we are a Pentecostal church is because it's part of God's story this is an historical reason. It's part of God's story from the beginning. It didn't just happen in Acts. It's been there from the very beginning. You with me? Number two, why we're a Pentecostal church. Number two, because Pentecost is the key to redemption. That's a biblical reason. It's the key to redemption. And you say, well, I thought Jesus was the key to redemption. I thought the cross was the key to redemption. Well, let me tell you what I mean by that. Three quick points to summarize the story of, of God's word. God's desire is to be in an intimate relationship with you and I. Everybody agree with that? It's good. It's, good. it's what he wants. It's the garden. <laughs> Two, sin has broken that relationship. An ark of the covenant, a tabernacle, a temple are all God's means of being in the center of his people. Everywhere they go, the ark was at the center, the tabernacle was at the center, the temple was at the center. 
that's a symbol for God wanting to be the very central reality for all of humanity. That's not enough though. The physical box wasn't enough. The fabric temple, the tabernacle wasn't enough. The stone temple wasn't enough. So the key, why is that not enough? Because there is a separation in the human heart. Sinful humanity cannot be next to, 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 to sinless God. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. God's like, I, can, I love you, but I can't stand to be near you because you're so hard-hearted. You're so wicked in your thoughts. And I planted myself right in the middle of it, and you still ignore everything I want you to do. And so he begins to reveal to his prophets an idea that will change things. His idea is not a better symbol. His idea is internal change. So he begins to prophesy. Isaiah 32. The palace and the city will be deserted, says God. The busy towns will be empty. This is judgment coming. Wild donkeys will frolic and great, and flocks will graze in the empty forts in the watchtower until at last the Spirit is poured out on us from heaven. Then the wilderness will become a fertile field, and the fertile field will yield bountiful crops. Little hint. Isaiah's prophesying by this. He gives a little hint. One day the Spirit's going to be poured out, and it's going to change the face of the earth. Isaiah says the same thing later on, 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, says God. Streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. There's this language again about being poured out, poured out, poured out. Ezekiel, another another prophet says this. God says, I will take away your stubborn heart and give you a new heart and a desire to be faithful. This is in 36. Listen to this. "You You will have only pure thoughts. What? God, do you know what's in my mind? Do you know how polluted my mind is? God says, I know, but I'm going to do something that will cause you to only have pure hearts because I will put my spirit in you and make you eager to obey my laws and my teachings. And the ancient people said, but God, we don't want to obey your laws and your teachings. They're hard and they're difficult. And God says, I know, it's because you don't have a heart that I've not changed yet. Is one day I'm going to send my spirit to make that change. Joel 2, then after doing all these things, says the Lord, I will pour my spirit out upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. Joel chapter 2. Those are four. There are, there are many others in the Old Testament prophetic promises that God has made for the new covenant. That's what we call it. The old covenant was the law given on stone. Here's how you walk in relationship with me. You're saved by grace. I brought you out. I brought you out of slavery by grace. You didn't do anything to earn that. Keeping the law is not going to get you out of slavery. My grace brought you out of slavery, but here is how you maintain a relationship with me. This is not works theology. There was grace all in the Old Testament too, you know? It's not like God was a God of grace only in Jesus. God was a God of grace way back when. He says, here's this law. This is how you walk it out with me. If we're going to be in covenant relationship, husband and wife, loving on one another, there's some things you got to know. You can't have other idols. You can't be sharing your bed with other people. You can't be hating your brother and killing your brother. You can't be stealing and lying and cheating, dishonoring me. 
Here's the law. Here's the, the, the means at which we're going to have a relationship together. That was the old covenant. It's to do this and to do that. And that was what was needed for that time. But God says, the time is going to come when I'm going to flip things around. I want to give you a new law. This time I'm not going to write it in stone because Moses broke that first one. I want to carve it inside your own spiritual DNA. I want to change your spiritual DNA. So all of a sudden you're reoriented to want to love me and to serve me more. And begins, prophets say this. It's what he says, prophets Tell my people that this is coming. Tell my people that there's going to be a new law that's going to come down from the mountain. And it's not going to be like the old law. So the secret plan of the Father. The Spirit will be poured out like rain. You know what rain does? How many of you walk outside in a rainstorm? Is there one raindrop? You ever been somewhere like where one person, Dylan, walks outside and it's like Charlie Brown. All the rain is coming on him alone. And the rest of us are like... Why does dude get all the rain? Why don't we get any? You know? That's the difference in the Old Testament. Only a few people for a short season receive the Holy Spirit. Only once in a while, someone for a specific task would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That wasn't a rainstorm. That was like a lightning bolt. Boom. Right? But the, pro- the promise of the Father is, guys, you have no idea. Listen, you thought that was cool when there was a lightning strike and it hit Dylan. All of a sudden, begin to prophesy. Wait until there's a whole thunderstorm and the rain is coming down on every single one of you. It's going to be insane. The Spirit will be poured out like rain. That's the first. The Spirit will be a personal, constant presence of the living God. We're singing this. You know, David is prophesying when he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. He's prophesying, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. David knows that that like the presence of the Lord is so precious and even so rare that if I have it, I have everything. So God, whatever you do, create a clean heart in me. Don't take your presence from me. He's seen it. David has seen with his own eyes. He's watching Saul. Remember Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's one of the select few in the Old Testament who's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he begins to prophesy. And Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is just this force to be reckoned with. And the people are like, oh my, holy cow, Saul, you're like big in body. You're like a tall dude, but you're also mighty in the Spirit. Begins to prophesy. But David watches that as Saul begins to reject the word of the Lord, the Spirit soon is so grieved that the Spirit leaves Saul. Paul, David knows that there's such a danger in grieving God. So after his own sin, that's what Psalm 51 is is, is responding, his own sin with Bathsheba hopping in the sack with her, he cries out, God, please don't, don't let happen to me what happened to Saul. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, whatever you do, whatever you got to change in me so that you can be here all the time, do it and change it. And the plan of the Father is that the Spirit is going to be this personal constant presence of the living God. You guys, you, I'm saying we don't even begin to understand how incredible this is. If we could go back in time 3,000 years ago and speak to David and say, David, you'll never believe what happened. You'll never believe what happened. When, you're, when, you're, when you're, your descendant Jesus came, you'll never believe what happened in that upper room. The Spirit came and he never left. And David would begin to weep 
And Moses would begin to weep, and Abraham would just begin to weep because they knew that this is what is needed. Personal, constant presence of the living God. Spirit's going to bring inner transformation that causes outer righteousness. Inner transformation. In other words, my DNA of my spirit is changed so that I walk in ways that are holy. doesn't mean that I put on a holy mask and I earn my salvation through works. That means God changes my heart so that I want to love my wife more and want to be faithful to her. Changes my heart so that I don't want to kill anyone, usually. Not seriously. He causes things that were once wrong and bad and harmful and sinful and dishonoring to him and, 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 and dysfunctional. He's, he's changed those things, still changing them. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not done at all. But God, is, I'm not the same person that I was five years ago, 10 years ago. I'm not the same. You better look at yourself and say you're not the same. It's not because you have gone to conferences and read the books and, you know, Zig Ziglar's 10 steps to be a better. It's not because of all of that. It's because the spirit inside of you is transforming you little by little, shift by shift. You are not the same person that you were a year ago. You're not. Even if you don't see it, you're not the same one. So it's the biblical key to redemption. Pentecost is the key to redemption. I want to tell a little bit more about that later, but let's go on to number three. I have a historical reason for you too, why we are a Pentecostal church. Number three, Pentecost is the culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth. If you're like me, I was taught that, that it ended with the empty grave, Right? Or maybe you were taught, you go to the average person on the street, hey, what, tell, tell me about the story of Jesus. They would say, well, he died on the cross for the sin. He died on the cross. And sort of that would be the, the, the end of the story, right? Or if, you, if people that are committed believers, they'll know, well, it's not the end of the story. There's actually the, the, the empty grave. And they would say, well, that's the end of the story. He didn't just die, but he came back to life. I want to suggest to you that's not the end of the story either. He spent time teaching, saying, listen, you need to get ready for the promise of the Father. I made a way so that you could receive the promise of the Father. And it didn't end with the cross. It didn't end with the empty grave. Frankly, it hasn't ended with Pentecost, but you get my point. So Acts chapter 2 says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God... He, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. I want you to see Jesus is central in all of this. He is the means by which we have the Holy Spirit. The blood of Jesus purifies the temple of the human heart. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost fills the clean temple. That's biblical theology right there. Jesus isn't enough. Let me tell you what I mean. He himself said that. It's good that I go. It's good that I go, said Jesus, because one who will come will be with you forever. 
Jesus knows that his role is to purify the human heart through his own sacrificial death and resurrection so that when the presence of the Holy Spirit comes, there is a clean house that he can come and he can fill. Ever notice how deeply involved the Holy Spirit was in Jesus' life? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know that. The Holy Spirit was there all through the birth story. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit at birth. The Holy Spirit was there at his baptism. The Holy Spirit was there with Jesus in the desert. The Holy Spirit was there in his ministry. At the end of his ministry, the Bible says that he breathes the Holy Spirit onto the disciples and promises them more to come. You cannot separate the ministry of the Holy Spirit from the ministry of Jesus. He is fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so Luke 24 says, I'm going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I don't want to tell you, for Jesus, his whole mission is to bring about the promise of the father. It wasn't just to be an example to us of love. It wasn't just to be a martyr for the faith. It wasn't to start a movement. It wasn't simply to forgive you of your sins so that you could live any way that you want and one day have your little punch ticket to heaven. That's not why he came. His whole mission is bringing about the promise of the Father. The Father wants to inhabit human hearts. And Jesus says, Father, I have a way. I know how to make that happen. And so he comes. It's the culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth. Number four, Pentecost is the only true source of power for the church. It's the only true source of power for the church. This is a practical reason. If the Holy Spirit was the key to Jesus' power, it's got to be true for us. Man. Acts 1, you will receive power, he says. Boy, did they. Power for what? What did they receive power to do? Be a witness? What else? Power for what? Healing people? Raise the dead? Heal the sick? See the unseen? Here's one. Power to love the person next to you they don't really love sometimes. Power to love your neighbor. Power to do the right thing. Power to walk in holiness. All of those are true. All of those take supernatural power that we don't have. And Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I also wrote this down. We have power to do two things, proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. The same disciples who just several weeks before were hiding because of fear and shame, even after Jesus was raised from the dead, they're still hiding in a room with the door locked. Even, even when they know he's raised from the dead, they're still hiding in a room with the door locked. What in the world? Regardless, that same bunch of lily-livered, chicken-hearted weenies now under the power of the Holy Spirit is proclaiming with such ferocity and boldness. 
in the public square of Jerusalem. What in the world? That wasn't a pep talk, y'all. That wasn't a coach firing them up. Power to do things, proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. I want to recommend two books to you too. Meg, hand me these. I know this is a little bit of a diversion, but I don't want to forget. There's so many good books on, on the Holy Spirit. So many good books. I got a bunch in my office, but these are two that I really, really like. One of them is called The Essential Guide to the Power of the Holy Spirit by Randy Clark. And this isn't just, oh, how do I prophesy? How do I heal? This is, you know, really good stuff like, you know, does it oppose, you know, does it exalt the true Christ? Does it oppose worldliness? Does it point people to Scripture? He's so grounded, so good. This is a good book. Francis Chan, Forgotten God. Good books. Read those. I'm convinced, though, that it's the only true source of power for the church. Can the church be powerless, still be the bride of Christ? Well, yes. God, God has grace. God loves there will be many who, who arrive before the throne of God with very little to show for it. That's the grace of the Lord, but that's not what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to be an empowered church. He wants you to be an empowered family. But I can tell you, the only true source of that is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit. There is no other means. Nothing. Nothing at all. It'd be easier if it was, you know, it could formula, but there's not. Finally, this, because without Pentecost, you can't fully live the life God has for you. This is a personal reason. You can't fully live the life God has for you. Acts 19, 1 through 3 describes many Christians today. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. But a Pentecostal experience, the filling of your whole being by the Holy Spirit of God, it's the only way that we can fully live the life that God wants for us. You see, without Pentecost, you will have forgiveness from your sin, but you won't have freedom over it. The, the cross will forgive you of your sin, but only the Holy Spirit can give you freedom over it. Romans 8 says this, the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Y'all, I've been there. Believe me, I know. Without Pentecost, you'll have the burden of prayer, but you won't have the blessing of presence. There's nothing worse than praying without presence. Oh, my word. <laughs> what a burden it is. But here, let me describe to you, this is a Pentecostal prayer meeting. Acts 16, 25 to 26. By the way, this is not descriptive of how it always has to be. I just want to give you a taste, though, of the blessing of God's presence in prayer. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now that does not happen every time we have a prayer meeting. 
It's probably good. We don't need our foundation shaken and our walls to be shaken. <laughs> Literally, like, with that. But with Pentecost, when we pray, there is this blessing that God shows up in power. Without Pentecost, you'll be a slave, not a son. Romans 8 says this, the spirit that you received doesn't say that the cross of Christ says the spirit that you received brings about your adoption as sons. Now, how do we have the spirit? Through the cross of Christ. Can we get the spirit without the cross of Christ? Absolutely not. The cross is central. But the spirit that you receive brings about your adoption as sons. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Without Pentecost, you're still a slave. You're not a son. And without Pentecost, you'll have a mandate for ministry, but you won't have the means. Imagine if our, if the gospel ended at Matthew 28. Disciples, go make, I want you to, to, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, you guys ready? Okay, I'm going. I'm about to float up in the clouds. Y'all go do this. Y'all go build my church. Go spread the good news. Go door to door. Ride a bike. Knock on the door. All right. Bye, y'all. See you later. You know what it says here in, in, in Matthew during that same instance? That same moment that Jesus gives him this. Here is the, the climate on that mountaintop. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. How in the world do you see the crucified son of Jesus, the crucified son of God, nail-pierced hands, doing signs and wonders, he appears, he says, go to this mountain and wait for me. How do you still doubt? Because I think what they were doubting was not that he was who he said he was. I think they were doubting whether or not they could even do this without him. Jesus, please don't go. Please don't leave. Please don't go. We can't even Without Pentecost, you have the mandate for ministry, but you don't have the means for it. But he goes, he knows what's best. He says, guys, I got to do this, but I'm going to tell you something better is coming. Not someone better, something better is coming. Second Peter 3, 1 says, his divine power, power, dunamis, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. Without Pentecost, you can't fully live the life that God has for you. So this is why we are a Pentecostal church. Lowercase p, it's okay to say that. All right, Jamie, come on up. Y'all coming up. We got another song we're going to do here.
This is the season, I believe, that that God wants his church to seek again an outpouring of the Spirit. There have been... There's a, 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 a group from Korea that's been sent to the United States. They've been sent to 17 different cities to pray for awakening. And Lexington is one of those cities. And they've been here since what? Since the first and they're leaving tomorrow. This is the last night. Tonight at six o'clock at Manowar Church, there's a sort of a gathering prayer meeting these, with these Korean Christians and a bunch of area pastors and leaders, intercessors, believers, moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, sons and daughters gathering. I want to encourage you to come to that tonight, seven o'clock to, or six o'clock to eight o'clock. I will be there. Meg will be there. We'll be there. There's a, there's a movement happening in increasing hunger for revival in Lexington and in our nation. I know you read the news, it doesn't seem that way. I promise though. God is raising up labors in his vineyard. He's stirring up prayer again in his church. He's calling churches to unite together in ways we've not seen before. He's calling pastors to return to the word again like ways they've not known. I met another, they had a Southern Acres reunion here yesterday from people that attended this church before we took over. And I met a pastor in Shelby, Shelby, in Shelby County, pastoring a Christian church there, you know. I was talking to him about this, talking to him about the prayer movement. And he's like, yeah. He's like, he's like um, we just started this thing called Unceasing Prayer. Have you heard about it? I was like, are you kidding me? That's what we're doing here too, you know. Steve Pearson from Church of the Savior is gathering us together. And he's like, yeah, we're doing it over here in Shelby County as well. It's beautiful to hear that. Just different denominations, people coming together to pursue awakening and to pursue revival. And central to all of this is a conviction that we, that everything we need is in the blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Everything is in there. Don't give us one without the other. We have to be. We have to be a Pentecostal church. We have to be all in. There's, there's no real answer for what the Lord can do in the world apart from that. The world is not interested in, in, in cheap theatrics or empty doctrine, five-step program of how to live a healthier, happier life. Not interested in that. They want to know what's the purpose of life? Why was I created? How can my life have meaning? And this is the answer for that right here. Created to be in intimate communion with our maker. Hearts made righteous, full of his presence, full of his power living out the life that he has for us now, not waiting for heaven now. Amen? Come on, this is what we're committed to. Y'all stand up together. Y'all stand up. I want to pray for us. I want us to receive again. You know, this is not a doctrinal statement I'm making. I promise. I want, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit again, y'all. I do. It's not because I wasn't full before, but you know what? I leak. I got some holes in me and it leaks out a little bit. I need to go back to God and say, do it again. <laughs> do it again, you know. So I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. We're going to do this together. 
Father, we love you today. We're waiting right here. We're waiting, Lord, right here. We want this house to be shaken, Lord. We want this house to be shaken, Lord. We want the winds of Pentecost to blow without ceasing, Lord. Father, you've released your promise. We pray, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Like tidal waves that just come one after the next upon the shore, God, we want it again. We've not had enough. Father, would you fill me in a fresh way with your Holy Spirit? Because I get crusty and I leak a little bit. I don't want to just read about theology. I just don't want to read books about it. I want to experience it. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come? So, Father, we just receive by faith, Lord, your promise. We receive your Holy Spirit. We say yes to you.